This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, Literary Director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In this episode, internationally beloved author Isabella Allende sits down virtually with her good friend PBS NewsHour's Jeffrey Brown to discuss her latest novel, A Long Petal of the Sea. Along the way, she brings us closer to the upheavals of the Spanish Civil War, Chile during Pinochet's military dictatorship, the stories of refugees known and imagined, and of course, the art of fiction. I'm Jeffrey Brown with the PBS NewsHour, and it's a great pleasure for me to be back with the Sun Valley community, and a really special pleasure to welcome our guest, Isabel Allende, one of the world's most beloved writers, and I should say, a good friend of mine. So, Isabel, first, hello. Hello. How are you? How are you? <laughs> Tell us how you're doing uh, with life in pandemic. What is it like? Well, for a writer, it's no problem because I'm used to be alone and in silence many, many hours a day, hiding in the attic. Uh, So I'm doing well. And being locked in doesn't affect me that much, except for the fact that now I'm I'm married. I have a current husband. And I I I have to share that small space with him. We have a very small house with two dogs, one bedroom, so that is a little hard, but we are coping. We've been married for a year and we are not divorced yet. So it's working. <laughs> I, I, I think I will refrain from asking more questions because <laughs> I know a little bit of that history, but I'm glad to hear it's working out. <laughs> you know, I was, I was also thinking about you though, more seriously writing stories of um, great drama, of great trauma, through history, including what you've lived through. And here we are ourselves living in a, in a drama. Do you register it as a writer yet? Are you able to stand back a little bit or are you, is it just too, too, too real right now? Both, I, I, I'm writing a novel that is the story of a woman who lives a hundred years. She's born in the pandemic of uh, 18, 1918, the the flu, the Spanish flu, which really reached Chile in 1920. And she dies in 2020. So she lives a century. And the two pandemics are like the bookends, you know, of the story, but it's not about the pandemic. And I think that there will be a lot of creators very soon doing everything, television, film, photography, everything about this pandemic, because it's a unique, unique moment in history in which all humankind connected experiences the same thing, because we have had other pandemics, but it comes and goes, and without this global connection that we have today, that makes us aware of everything that's happening in the last remote village somewhere, so it is very, very interesting. 
Did that whole story come to you in recent months or was that based on an idea you had from long ago? It comes out of discipline, Jeff. I start all my books on January 8th. By January 7th, I had nothing. I was in the middle of a book tour. I had done the book tour in the United States. I was going to do the book tour in in the UK. Uh, I was just overwhelmed. But I knew that on the 8th, I had to set the day aside and, and get something started. The pandemic had not started yet at that moment, but I began a book not knowing where the heck I was going. And uh, slowly but surely things uh, sort of unravel. You, I begin with a story, sometimes with just a time and a place, and, and then I don't even have the characters, but when the characters come, slowly, at the beginning, they are very blurred. They, they become people. And when they start talking to me and doing things that I never expected, then I know the book is coming. It's coming along. But the discipline is also important, huh? The specific date to get you going, to get you sitting down and writing? Yeah, the, the discipline not only of starting, but of showing up. Mm-hmm. Showing up is the hard part sometimes. And uh, the pandemic has made it easier because there's, for me, nothing else to do. I walk the dogs in the morning, every day, and then I sit up here in the attic. Here's this little space that you see, and I and I work. So let's talk about the most recent novel, novel A Long Petal of the Sea. We, we know, we readers know, because you tell us at the end in, a, in an author's note, that it began long ago, the kernel of a, a story, a, a true story that you heard as a young child yourself. What was that story? What stuck with you? Nothing at the time, because uh, the story really happened in 1939 before I was born. Um, I was living in my grandfather's house in Chile um, when when I was a, a young child. And we had friends that came to visit. Some of them had a weird way of talking. Those were the Spaniards, the Spanish refugees, some of them, who had come to Chile in 1939 under very special circumstances. The civil war in Spain ended in January of 1939, and half a million people walked from Barcelona to the French border uh, trying to get, to get away from the fascist troops of Franco that had taken over the whole country. And the revenge of those uh, fascist troops was horrible. So people were running away. And can you imagine, on a winter day, terribly cold, half a million people at the border knocking at the door to get in France? The French didn't know what to do with them. Mm-hmm. Finally, when they opened the border to let them in, they put them in concentration camps in beaches that they improvised with barbed wire. There was not even running water, nothing. No shelter, nothing. And people started dying there. And the poet Pablo Neruda in Chile convinced the government of Chile to receive a few refugees. He went to Europe, um, fundraised first, then bought a cargo ship, an old dilapidated cargo ship, conditioned it to transport passengers, selected 2,200 people and put them on the ship and sent them to Chile. And they arrived in Chile in September of the same year of 1939. 
the same day that the Second World War started in Europe. So these people were saved by a miracle. Mm. And they arrived in Chile and were received with open arms. There was a crowd at the port cheering them, welcoming them. And among them was my family. So men, some of them remain friends with my family. And that's when I first heard the story of the Winnipeg. But it didn't register with me. I was a child. Mm -hmm. Many years later, many, many years later, in Venezuela, I met one of the passengers of the Winnipeg, a man called Victor Pei. He became my friend. He was much older than me, but we became very good friends. He told me his story then, and I kept it in my heart for 40 years. Uh, and then I wrote it. And you wrote it, do you, you make a decision to um, kind of fill in or bring to life the reality, but through fiction? Yes, because I work better with fiction. I can move more freely. I have written nonfiction. I know. And I, and I, I started supposedly with nonfiction as a journalist, but I was a lousy journalist. I'm sure that <laughs> there was a lot of fiction in my journalism. And um, and then in fiction, moving my characters freely, I can tell a time and a place as an event like the Civil War or like uh, immigration, being a refugee, being an asylum seeker, all those things that I know very closely, not only because some of it I have experienced, but because I have a foundation that works with refugees. So I have a lot of stories. So, but, the, but in this case, a case like this, the historical facts, I assume, give you a kind of framework to, to use and then kind of fill in the story from there. Is that, is that a fun thing to do or is that a kind of restricting thing at some point? No, it's not. It's, it's restrictive in the sense that I have to stick to the truth as much as it's known. But I'm always telling the story from the, with the voices of those who are not the heroes, not the ones that we see in the history books. I'm talking about women, children, uh, the losers, the people who lost the war, not those who won the war. And, and that gives me a lot of freedom for the feelings, for the, the other side of the historical events. And the research gives me so much material that I would have never been able to imagine it. Sometimes the, the frame, as you call it, is half the book. Mm. It, 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 I really don't have to make it up. So talk to us a little bit about the characters that you did make up then. They were in part based on some of these people that you met, but you start with them in Spain in that moment, as you describe, where the civil war is ending and they become refugees. And then they come to Chile and become closer themselves, but also become part of a new, citizens of a new world as well. Yes, they come escaping from war, but they go to the end of the world, literally the end of the world. Many of them had never heard of Chile, let alone place it in the map. And on the voyage that lasted a month, they were told what Chile was, what to expect, and what they were told was not great. They told them, you have to work a lot. It's going to be really hard. It's a tough country with terrible earthquakes. It's a poor country. It's really far away and remote, disconnected. So when they get there, they know that they are coming to stay. Very few of them even dream that they will go back. However, 
and they did stay in Chile for 30 years and they had a life. Some of them, however, had to go into a second exile because in 1973, we had a military coup in Chile in similar circumstances as what had happened in 1936 in Spain. A leftist government is democratically elected and the, and the military rebel. And the, in, in Spain, uh, they were confronted with the people who fought back and there was a civil war. In Chile, they took over the country in 24 hours. And some of those refugees had to go into a second exile. And that's how I met Victor Pei in Venezuela, where I was also living in exile. But Victor, given that his new land, Chile, was living under a dictatorship, decided to go back to Spain when Franco died in 1975. And he realized that it wasn't his country anymore. So as soon as we had democracy in Chile many years later, he returned. He died in Chile. He was 103 years old. And he died six days before I could send him the manuscript of my novel dedicated to him. Oh, my goodness. He was yeah. totally lucid and strong. He would drive to his office every morning, dangerously, but he did. And so we communicated by phone and email during the whole process of me writing the novel. And he gave me details that I would have never been able to find otherwise. But the theme, I mean, the, the story is there, but the theme becomes just what you've been talking about, right? The connections we feel, the displacement, when that's, no, when that's taken away, a sense of belonging or unbelonging, a sense of where is one's home. Yes. Is that fair? Yes. Yes, and my protagonists in the book, like Victor Pei at the end, they go back to Spain and then they say, no, this is not our home anymore. And they, they return to Chile as soon as they can and they die there. And you know, in, in a way, it happens to me. I have this nostalgic idea of Chile, this sort of dream that, that is the country I left but 40 years have gone by, and when I go back, it's not the country I remember. And most probably, I will die in the United States, because this is my country now. I want to come back to all of that, but I want to just stay with this book for a little longer, because the, you know, another connection, obviously, and you mentioned a little, a little while back, is the, the theme of refugees, the theme of migration. You were writing this while this is all happening in our country as well, and around the world, yes. right? I assume, I mean, I, I don't assume, I know, because I know you, that you pay attention to these things. What is it like writing about that history in a novel while you're reading the newspapers or watching the news about these kinds of events right now? It's totally connected, because what happened then and happens now is the same thing. People's suffering, the feelings, the emotions, the displacement, the anxiety, the fear, all that is the same. It hasn't changed at all. The only difference is that today we have more refugees in the world than ever before. But, but those, the, the refugees of today are the, like the refugees of then. Um, and because I know so many stories through my foundation, I can relate to those feelings in a very 
in, in a very profound way. Um, so that helps me when, when I'm writing. But also, when there's something in the air that is so powerful, so powerful a theme, like immigrants and refugees today, 70 million people that roam the earth looking for a home, that's in the air. It's in the collective consciousness. Even if we don't feel it as a personal thing, it's there, like a cloud. It's like climate change, it's there. And I've been, in the last three books that I have written, three novels, uh, The Japanese Lover, uh, In the Midst of Winter, and Long Petal of the Sea, I touch on immigration, on displaced people. Because I, I feel it, I, it's, it permeates me constantly. As other things do too, like violence against women, which is also present in my books. Not because I look for it as a, as a gimmick or, or as a literary device, but because it affects me so, so much in my personal life. And does that change your sense of um even responsibility to your characters, the way you think about them as you're developing them and writing them, a sense of responsibility to tell their story correctly, to tell it fully. I mean, how, did, how, does, it, how does it make you feel about the characters themselves? Well, as a writer, any writer will tell you the same. We have a huge responsibility of becoming each one of the characters. Otherwise, becoming. becoming we we mm -hmm. embody them, we feel for them, we live for them as we write. Otherwise, they are like caricatures, you know? There are certain genres in literature, as you know, in which there is a formula, and you, you sort of stick to the formula and it works. But when you write what we consider really serious literature, we really try to make characters as complex and contradictory and three-dimensional as people really are. For me, the easiest way to, to begin with a character is to look for a person that would be my, my model. And in the case of A Long Petal of the Sea, I already had Victor Pei. So Victor Dalmau in the book is Victor Pei in real life. I didn't have to make him up. I even described him physically as he was. But sometimes I have to look for the character. It's not as if the character just came to me like Victor did. Let's say that I write a book in which I need a soldier or a priest or someone. I look for someone and I observe carefully to see the body language, the way they are in the world. And then I try to become that person in order to write about them. Of course, in this case, you also had a kind of uh, epic-making uh, global figure in the poet Pablo Neruda, right? Yes. A rather important person in, in your native country and yes. the world. Yes, and he, the, this book would have never been possible. The Odyssey of the Winnipeg would have never been possible without him. He imagined that he could bring these people to Chile. He got authorization from the government, and he did all the work, even selected the people that got on the ship. There's a point in, the, in his memoir, I confess that I have lived, in which he says, maybe all my poetry will be forgotten, but this poem of the Winnipeg will always be remembered. I was, I was thinking, I mean, he, he's an example of a, a writer, an artist, 
so in the world, right? So yeah. connected to what's going on. This is a very one of the very specific uh, uh, occasions in his life, but there were many. See, do you think of well, him he as was, he was a political man? He was yeah. a, he, he he was a leftist sympathizer all his life, and then he became a communist at some point. He was at one moment in his life. In I think it was 1969. There was a coalition of parties of the center and the left, and the usual candidate for that coalition had been Salvador Allende, who had lost the election three times. So they thought, okay, we can't have a loser here. And they asked Pablo Neruda to be the candidate to represent this coalition. And he did for a few months and realized that that was not his calling. He really wanted to write poetry, not to go in a train up and down the country giving political speeches, which he really couldn't do. He would get up in the train uh, and the train would stop in a station and he would recite his poetry. <laughs> and the crowd would recite it back to him because it was so popular. Mm -hmm. So eventually he said, no, I'm not the right man for this. And then Allende, Salvador Allende, was again chosen as the candidate. And this time he won in 1970. Let's go to some of that history because it involves you. I mean, starting with the young Isabel Allende. Who, who was she? What, was, what did she do during the day? What were her ambitions at the time? What are you talking when you say young? How young? <laughs> How <laughs> young do you want to go, Isabel? <laughs> look, for me, everybody's young now. I Everybody. know. I mean, I mean, as a young girl, I mean age 10 or so. What, oh, what I was living you? in my grandfather's house and as a child and a, and a teenager. I was so angry. I was sullen, angry, introverted, a good reader, but furious at the world. And uh, Why? I think I was a feminist when I was five years old. I hated ma male authority. I hated the, the, the class system in Chile, the way the, the maids in the house were treated, the way my mother was treated. Uh, I, I rebelled against, I wanted to be a man, and then around maybe 11, when two little prunes appeared here, I realized I couldn't be a man, but then maybe I could live like a man. But and how so did you break that? How did you, because it, it is, it, it was, still is to some degree, a very hierarchical society, right? And, uh, oh, I'm very macho, very, very sexist, yeah, yeah. And then so the, Catholic, you, and then the weight of up? the Catholic Church. Remember that I was oh, yes. brought up in a conservative, authoritarian, Catholic environment. And um, how did I react to that? I think by seeing my mother as a victim of her circumstances. I couldn't analyze all this. Now I can explain it because I went to therapy when I was 50. And the therapist explained it back to me. But, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but then it was just the feelings, you know, the feeling of impotence, of how unfair the world was. And I think that was, as I remember, the main, the most important, the most powerful feeling and the most powerful force in my life at the time. And that remained with me until my mid-twenties when I found feminism in the sense that I started reading feminist books that I, I didn't know that feminism as a movement existed. I thought I was just crazy. And then I realized that there were millions of women that were thinking like me, and I wasn't 
a lunatic. So that gave me a sort of a voice. And I became a feminine feminist journalist <laughs> in my country. And that changed everything. The anger was became something different, became a way of, of fighting against something that to this day I think is very unfair. And that was channeled first, as you say, into uh, journalism, the magazine you founded and wrote for, Paula. And then, um, but at that time, that's what you were doing, writing journalism, right? You were not thinking of, 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 of novels, of being a, a fiction writer? No, the, no. It would have been presumptuous, even arrogant, because uh, the, the writers that I knew about were all male. The, the boom of Latin American literature had taken the world by assault, really, the literary world. And um, they were all male. Right. I hope you all mind, but I want to share with everybody that uh, we, that I got a chance to go on a trip with you to Chile <laughs> last year. Oh, that was uh, fun. It was that very was so fun, with our, fun with our spouses and, and mutual friends. And it was, of course, fun, yes, but, but the, the part that still strikes me is the way people recognized and um, embraced you. Um, I hadn't seen anything quite like that anywhere in the world, frankly. <laughs> and I, and I, you know, part of it is you and your relationship to readers. Part of it is the country itself, I think. Um, people would come out of the woodworks in a way. It wasn't just on the street, but we would be on a, at a restaurant, as you remember, and the, 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 the waiters and the cook staff would come out, and somehow your books would appear, Isabel. And I remember, remember? kidding you, like, <laughs> I, kidding you, like, how do they all have your books ready for signing? I was kidding you that you must have called ahead, but no. Uh, no, I didn't call ahead, but I told you, in Chile, you might find books in the kitchen. Exactly, but tell yeah. tell. <laughs> Tell us about that. What, what is it about Chile that, um, that this connection to books and writers? I don't know if with every writer that happens, but with some writers, people connect uh, as if they were rock stars. And um, Neruda was the perfect case. When I told you that people would uh, recite back his poetry to him, it's because we learned, uh, we, we, it's not that we learned it, we heard it and repeated it. And Pablo Neruda, look, when we, we had the military coup, Pablo Neruda died 11 days after the military coup, on September 22nd, 1973. And he, um, some people think that he was poisoned. And his house in Isla Negra was closed and really uh, bored, practically boarded. And it had a fence, a wooden fence. I w was able to return to Chile for the first time uh, for the plebiscite. And the plebiscite was in 1988. The house had been closed for 16 years and the fence was covered, completely covered, with messages. And the messages were little pieces of paper stuck in the, in the wood or written on the wood or stones left there. Little stripes of fabric with writing hanging from, covered. 
of the people who went to say hello or tell their stories to the poet. The poet had been buried in an unknown grave here or there. And then his body finally ended up where he wanted his body to be, in that house. The house is on the, on the beach and there is a huge rock and under that rock is Neruda and his wife. They, they're both buried there. But they, at the time, the, the bodies were not there, but people would go there as they go to a shrine. And this is a poet. We are not talking about a politician. We are not talking about a guru here or a rock star. It's not John Lennon. It's a poet. You know, uh, uh, b before we took that trip, I read one of your books that I hadn't known before, the memoir. I have it right here sitting on my desk, My Invented Country, where you, where you, where you look at the country that you left behind um, and, tell, and, and tell stories like that, I think, a little bit about the geography and the history, but also the connection to literature. How have you... How have you n navigated this sense of belonging and an actual loss of country? Inventing a country, living in, living in that invented country. Of course, uh, the country I left 40 years ago is not the same. The world has changed and I have changed and of course the country has changed. Um, and, and what has also in, in a way changed is part of the idea of who people are in Chile. There has been a lot of change that has changed people. 17 years of dictatorship marked the country. First of all, the, the coup divided it and polarized people. Thousands and thousands went into exile. Thousands died. Some, many, many disappeared innumerable people were tortured and punished for being leftist. And in the meantime, there was economic growth and there was law and order and a sort of fascist way of thinking, ideology. So the country changed. It had never been like that before. And after the dictatorship, when everything was privatized, when the, the people had been subdued, and repressed for so long, it took years to get back into the, the feeling of being a free democracy that we had had before. So no wonder it's not the same country at all. Plus, it's a much more modern country. Before it was backward and poor, and now it's not. And what about your own sense of um, place or citizenship? I don't mean an official citizenship. I mean your sense of who you are. Uh, I know that history and took you out of that country. Love moved you elsewhere another time. Who? What's your home? What do you? What's your sense of it? <laughs> when you ask me what are you, I say Chilean. It, it, it's natural for me to say Chilean, and I, I feel Chilean. I, I look Chilean, I have an accent, I go back to Chile and I understand all the clues and the codes, and I know exactly where I am, and the sense of humor is the same. That has not changed. Uh, and that is so important. You really belong in a place where you understand the humor, and, we can, and we, you can use the humor, which I... Look, I'm funny in Spanish, <laughs> Jeff. I'm telling you're you, I'm funny, funny in Spanish. You're pretty funny in English, too, yeah. <laughs> no. 
And so I go back and I, I belong, I feel that. But I belong for a week. And then after a week, I realize that my life is here. And, and so I, I come back and I keep this nostalgic dream of an ideal Chile. Now, for example, we, we have an election coming along. And I say, well, if Trump is elected again, where the hell am I going to go? And I think, well, Chile? Chile is going through hell also right now. Uh, we started with terrible protests in Chile, massive protests, millions of people in the streets in October of last year. And the, that paralyzed the country. And then the pandemic hit. So in October, the country will have been paralyzed for a year. And there is hunger among many people right now. There's, there's a political stagnation. It's a terrible situation, economically, socially, politically. It's a huge crisis. So it's not the ideal country either. The country that you and I saw when we went in that trip to the south, that ideal place, remember, Pucón? Well, that's probably very changed now. Of course, that fits with the, the whole narrative you've been telling us about your life, right? Of changes and seeing where things take you. Changes. Yeah, you have to be open and let, let the winds blow you in one direction or the other. And uh, I have lost the fear of death and, of course, the fear of life. So I can live and vote without fear. All right. Good place to stop. The, the new novel is A Long Petal of the Sea, Isabel Allende. Nice to talk to you, my friend Isabel. Thanks very much. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. You can catch previous podcast episodes, as well as installments of SVWC Now, our series of video conversations, at lithub.com or at the Sun Valley Writers Conference website, svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shilliday and the Network Studios.